You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Benjamin Percy is the author of The Wilding. His forthcoming novel is Red Moon. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin. Thanks so much for having me. This is a fabulous novel and a very interesting and original take on the werewolf uh, trope. Tell us a little bit about developing this, uh, I think, political version of the werewolf novel. Sure. Some of the most resonant and lasting horror stories I've always felt channel cultural unease in some way. Uh, Consider Frankenstein and the way it's born out of the Industrial Revolution, the fears of technology and science, of man playing God embodied in the creature. Think about the way that the Red Scare gave rise to invasion of the body snatchers, the way that the dead zone plays off Cold War anxieties. So when I sat down to write Red Moon, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about what we fear right now. And we fear, for one, infection. If you look at every countertop and storefront in America, they're oozing with Purell. And every time there's an outbreak of swine flu or bird flu or West Nile, even if the mortality rate is relatively low, uh, it paralyzes us. So there's that, and then there's the terrorism angle. And in that way, this is very much a post-9-11 reinvention of the werewolf myth, as most recently the Boston Marathon bombings have so sadly, unfortunately, reminded us we are terrified by terrorism. One of the things I think that was uh, so uh, powerful and entertaining about this book is the way you immerse us in your characters' perceptions and tell their stories. So talk about uh, creating the, the characters who, who drive the narrative. Well, I have uh, a scroll of paper about 10 feet long that hangs from my office wall. I rip it off of my son and daughters, Melissa and Doug Ardiesel. And about a year before I begin writing any novel, I start to sketch out some blueprints. I'm not just talking about plot points. I'm talking about characters who sometimes I'm actually drawing in addition to figuring out what their backstories and emotional arcs might be. So in coming up with these characters, uh, I'm doing any number of things. I'm blending together maybe the physical features of a neighbor and a cousin. I'm channeling, uh, you know, whatever grief or rage or jealousy or heartbreak I might have experienced. Uh, And I'm also sometimes trying to hold up a mirror to our world. And there are certain characters in this book who, you might think you recognize as political figures, uh, just as you might think you recognize certain cultural conflicts or international battles. But my hope is that 
I've warped the reflection enough that you can't point to any one person or can't point to any one thing and say, that's this, you know, that's this particular thing. Uh, I hope that I'm, I'm instead, you know, especially with some of the political figures that I want to give too much away, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to sort of tangle up all these frayed nerves in contemporary America. One of the things I think that's uh, so much uh, fun about this book is the the kind of you you take this uh, the whole story to a second level with the international aspect, and I think that's a really interesting uh, decision on your part as a writer because that complicates your storytelling, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Every time you uh, you add another stage or add another character to to the overall design, you have to spend, you know, a good number of pages uh, helping us believe in this person or believe in this in this new in this new world, this new set. So, uh, leaping around uh, from perspective to perspective and from location to location is logistically very complicated. Um, but you know, I wanted this to be a global novel, and I wanted to capture through the um, um, all these different perspectives, all these different approaches to, to to the themes I'm exploring. So I have characters of all ages. I have characters from all cultures. Uh, I have characters of all genders. I have characters on one side of the issue and the other, those who are infected and those who are uninfected. And there are no good guys or bad guys, really. Everything is is painted in shades of gray. One of the things that I think is interesting about this book is that when we read it, it feels very much like our world, and it reads really fast, and, and we know, I think, intuitively who we are. But when you step back from it, it's actually a, a completely creative world, and you've done a great job of world building. So I'd like you to talk about how you crafted this world in terms of the economy and the society so that it feels like our world, even though it's absolutely, in many ways, unlike our world. Sure. Well, the general advice is, when you're exploring something fantastic like this, is change one thing. So I have an alternate history here, but it's otherwise our world, except for the fact that 5% of the population is infected with Lobos. And Lobos is a misfolded protein. This infection is similar to mad cow disease or chronic wasting disease, these prions that target the mind and, in this case, uh, exacerbate sexual impulse and rage. So I spent a lot of time sitting down with the USDA labs, sitting down with researchers from Iowa State University and trying to figure out the slippery science behind all of this in order to create a kind of believable horror. And in doing so, I had to consider, of course, all right, if this segment of the population is infected, what are the ramifications for that? And I you know, had to think back to prehistoric times and, and sort of reinvent some of our wars along the way and some of our cultural conflicts, and and also just consider, as I move toward the end of the novel into a kind of apocalyptic scenario, what the economic ramifications might be. And, and in doing all of this, everything from my research into medical 
you know, the medical industry, everything from my interest, uh, my research into, to, to go, you know, government policies and, and economic uh, collapse, I, I turned to the experts and I sat down with people and got on the phone with people and I filled up so many yellow, te- yellow legal tablets in order to give my story street cred. One of the things I think that makes this book so uh, compelling is the really fast pace that you bring to it. This is uh, an incredible page turner from beginning to end. And I'd like you to talk about crafting the story. Did you uh, graph this out or did this kind of spill out once you had uh, created all the backstory for yourself? I mentioned that, um, you know, that 10 foot scroll on the wall and I, I know that some writers feel that um, the process should be more organic, but especially with a novel, I don't really trust myself to build a cathedral without a blueprint. So I, I do sketch things out in advance, but I sketch them out in pencil because so many things change along the way. Um, but when you're, you know, I've always loved big, sweeping books. The trouble is that how do you, you know, when you're dealing with such a vast orchestration as this, how do you grab the reader's attention and, and, not, and not let that interest fade? Uh, so over the top of this uh, blueprint, what I do is I, I create a kind of cardiogram or maybe a seismograph is a good way to think of it with peaks and valleys. And, and I'm, I'm mapping out the tension of the novel, a kind of suspensometer. And sometimes I will delay, withhold information for chapters at a time in order to st- strategically place like an explosive moment so that it comes at the right time uh, to create a kind of, uh, you know, narrative catharsis. So I'm being, I'm, I'm definitely standing back from the narrative and, and looking at it as a whole and trying to figure out how to best emotionally manipulate my reader. One of the things that <clears throat> this novel covers so well, or looks at so well, is the idea of the enemy within, both within ourselves, that, as in a disease, but also humans within a culture who look like humans but aren't human. So I'd like you to talk about that enemy within from two levels. Sure, sure. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that the werewolf myth has, has resonated all these years. Uh, we all, as a result of rage or exhaustion or alcohol or drugs, have come to regret our behavior the morning after. And the werewolf myth is very much about the unleashed id, the wildness that's inside all of us. I mean, we're all, I guess you could say, Harry on the inside, and that's the story of Jekyll and Hyde. That's the story of the Incredible Hulk. So there's the enemy within, and on the larger level, uh, this is why Invasion of the Body Snatchers terrified everyone so many years ago. Uh, The fear of communists among us who look just like anybody else. And in this day and age, you don't know who 
you know, there's, there's, there's all that fear about who the, the sex offender might be, who the serial killer might be, who the terrorist might be. And if only bad guys looked like Darth Vader, if only bad guys had tentacles growing out of their forehead, uh, but instead, you know, the fangs and fur only reveal themselves when the moon is full or the shades are down in the windows. So um, that's what I'm talking with. I've been speaking with Benjamin Percy. His forthcoming novel is Red Moon. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.